from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CEA podcast. My name is Sophia Besch. Welcome to our first podcast in the new year. And thanks everyone for joining us again. Today I'm in conversation with Beth Oppenheim, who you know as a podcast host, but who is also a research fellow in the CEA's London office and our resident expert on the Middle East peace process. And Beth has been doing some fascinating research into the EU's role in this process recently. And so I am really looking forward to getting a short summary of her assessment and her recommendations. Thanks for being on here, Beth. Oh, thank you, Sophia. Great to be on here and to have a bit of a role reversal again. Let's get into it then. When Federica Mogherini took office as the EU's High Representative for Foreign Policy in November 2014, she said that a two-state solution could be reached within her five-year term. But now that her successor, the Spanish Foreign Minister Borrell, has taken over, instead of progress, you say that we have seen signs of Israel strengthening its grip over the Palestinian territories and indications that Palestinian democracy is in a poor state. Could you catch everybody up? Where is the peace process at present? So I think it probably won't come as a surprise to many people that the general perception is that the peace process is pretty much stagnant, to put it mildly. Rhetoric and recriminations are extremely high on both sides. As you've kind of alluded to there, I think we're in a really dire situation in terms of the political leadership. We have this division between Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza. So the Palestinian leadership is both geographically and also ideologically divided. And there's not really much hope of reconciliation on the horizon at the moment. We we have this problem of a lack of legitimacy on the Palestinian side. Um, Abbas is very, very unpopular. There haven't been any elections held since 2006, or at least not held and then implemented. And then on the Israeli side, we've had a lot of drama going on in terms of Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister. Um, at the end of 2019, he was indicted for bribery, fraud and a breach of trust. And we have Israel in almost democratic crisis at the moment, heading into the third election in the space of 12 months and a very unclear future for Netanyahu, whether or not he'll be able to get immunity or not. And it seems that both sides are further away from being able to come to the negotiating table than ever. And then we have this situation where Israel is really taking very bold moves away from the two-state solution. And even actually at the level of rhetoric, it, it's actually rolled back from the old language of the international consensus and of the two-state solution, which in the past Israel has clung on to at least using the language whilst doing something else in, in reality. So we've seen this process of Israel de facto annexing the West Bank for decades. So that means Israel has been encouraging, or the Israeli government has been encouraging Jewish citizens of Israel and also from the diaspora community to move to the settlements. 
And so that, of course, is illegal under international law. And that's something that the Israeli government is a very specific tactical move to try to fragment the remaining Palestinian-controlled territory and to try to prevent any viable Palestinian state from emerging in the future. And then alongside that, it's also begun this process of de jure annexation, which is a, a relatively new phenomenon. So that's where the Israeli parliament or the Knesset has been passing laws that apply to the occupied West Bank. So actually extending the Israeli parliament's sovereignty into the occupied territories. So we've got this two-pronged policy of de facto and de jure annexation. And alongside that, we've had this very inflammatory annexationist discourse that's been ratcheting up in Israel. As I said, we have this quite crazy election, never-ending election cycle that's been going on. So the rhetoric got very high during the past two Israeli elections in which Netanyahu actually threatened to fully annex parts of the West Bank. You know, we have reasons to think he probably won't do it, particularly given his very unstable state at the moment. He's not actually able to take much action in this caretaker government. But we have very destructive policies being carried out by the Israeli government that run counter to the idea of a two-state solution. And of course, not forgetting Gaza. So Israel continues to maintain its closure policies towards the Gaza Strip, which it justifies on the basis of security. So I mentioned that the Palestinian leadership is split between Gaza and the West Bank. So Hamas, which is designated as a terrorist organization by the US, the EU, is the de facto ruler in, in Gaza and has staged um, rocket attacks, etc., on Israel relatively routinely. But the problem is that on this pretext of security, what happens is that the people in Gaza who have nothing to do with the Hamas militant group are routinely and illegally denied access to basic provisions, so things like electricity, clean water, medical care. So massive problems with the leadership and then an Israeli government that now has almost, it seems, abandoned any pretense of pursuing a two-state solution at all. Okay, so in this situation uh, that is, as you say, deteriorating almost, what has been the role of the EU in the region and in this process? How has the EU, how has uh, Mogherini in her time responded to Israel's actions? And perhaps you could just give us a quick summary, if possible, of the relationship between the EU and Israel. So the relationship between the EU and Israel is governed mostly by an association agreement. And then there's also the European neighborhood policy. And there are a number of bilateral agreements that the EU and Israel has also reached across a number of areas like police cooperation, most recently in development, but also aviation and other things. There's a very strong trade relationship between the EU and Israel. The EU is Israel's largest trading partner and Israel is the EU's fifth largest trading partner in the Mediterranean. So there's a very strong relationship underpinning this. I think in terms of what the EU's policy has been specifically towards the conflict under Mogherini, Mogherini was successful to some extent in at least preserving the EU's policy towards the conflict. So the idea of a two-state solution along the 
1967 borders, having Jerusalem as part of final status negotiations and reaching a just resolution to the question of the Palestinian refugees. And that wasn't necessarily a given because, of course, what what we haven't yet discussed, but I know we will later, is the destructive behaviour of the Trump administration, which came in during Mogherini's time as high representative. And of course, the way in which the Trump administration has thrown unconditional support behind Israel whilst also turning the screws on the Palestinians. So while the US has begun this very slippery descent from this consensus on the two-state solution, Mogherini did have a very uphill battle in terms of trying to preserve that from US attempts to undermine it. And Mogherini did broadly manage to do that. So she stopped member states from radically diverging from agreed positions. She continued to express the EU's support for international law, UN Security Council resolutions and such. And she also maintained the EU's financial support to the Palestinians in the face of cuts by the US administration. And so I think that's been significant. But I think that that can also be overstated because Mogherini struggled sometimes even to get joint statements out on behalf of the council. She was often forced to have to make statements just on her own authority or she was forced to use her press spokesperson to make statements. Underpinning all of this was a lot of divergence between different member states. So a lot of the time statements were sort of the lowest common denominator possible. The fact that I'm talking about statements here is significant because what we saw under Mogherini was really a reliance on traditional diplomatic means. And I think a lot of the EU's criticism took a rhetorical form, but we didn't see hardly any practical consequences to that condemnation. And I think that was a a significant failing from Mogherini, but from the EU more broadly. Without going into too much detail, could you just clarify what you mean when you say there's uh, divergence among EU member states and their relationship to Israel? Just maybe list the main players. So Netanyahu reached what was really a winning formula for dealing with the EU over the past few years, and it took him a while to reach this. But he basically has forged alliances with other illiberal and nativist governments and those, those governments are drawn from the Central and Eastern European bloc, in particular Viktor Orban in Hungary, but also um, in Poland and Romania and, and elsewhere, um, which is a kind of funny pairing, you might think, given some of the track record of leaders like Orban in deploying anti-Semitic language and tropes. But it seems that Netanyahu is willing to put such transgressions to one side in order to get the support that he needs from inside the EU. And then not only that, he's also um, cultivated relationships with countries like Greece and Cyprus, who have a shared interest in trying to increase energy cooperation with Israel. So those are the main the main players. But of course, the EU takes its foreign policy decisions by consensus. So if you have countries like Hungary backing Israel, then that makes it very difficult to reach any meaningful consensus in, in the Foreign Affairs Council. Okay, so that's been really helpful, I think, in just setting out the context and the difficulties that the EU and its foreign policy leadership runs into in trying to deal with this conflict. But I want 
to maybe talk a little bit more about the reasons behind why the EU is struggling so much to make an impact here when uh, it is its explicit um, intention to become a more of a player in this region. And perhaps this is when we might pick up on your earlier comments about the role that the Trump administration has played during Mogherini's administration. So I think the behavior of the Trump administration has been the the biggest obstacle to genuine EU uh, intervention on this conflict. I think the Trump administration, as I said, has rolled back from the international consensus down to the most basic tenets. So now the administration avoids using the term two-state solution. Jared Kushner has said he doesn't think it's helpful. Let's just not use it. The administration has cast out on the idea of a full Palestinian state. And recently, the administration has questioned whether the settlements are even necessarily illegal. So this, of course, has made a very difficult situation for the EU. It's also meant that some member states have been prone to wanting to diverge towards US positions. So that made things very difficult for Mogherini. And I think the other thing that we haven't mentioned, which has been significant, is the changing tectonics in the Middle East and how that's affected this conflict as well and also the EU's role because... I think that the increasing assertiveness of Iran in the Middle East has had a very significant impact in terms of realigning Israel's relationships to its historically very hostile Arab neighbors. So there's this growing trend of what people call normalization. So Israel growing much closer to its Arab neighbors like Saudi Arabia and like the UAE in particular. And in the past, that has imposed a bit of a restriction on Israel's policy towards the Palestinians, so the disapproval of the Arab neighbors. But now that, that, that that's barely there anymore, that releases some of the remaining pressure on Israel to change its policy. Without asking you to speculate too much or going into too much of a hypothetical situation here, but since you are um, identifying in particular the Trump administration's actions as one inhibiting factor in the EU's role in the region, There is an election coming up in the United States with a different uh, president from a different party, perhaps. Uh, are you more hopeful that the EU can have an impact here? Yes, definitely. I think the EU has often been led by US policy. It's always wanted to hide behind the US when it comes to Israel and Palestine. Of course, that's not the only issue where that's true. The Trump administration has made that much more difficult for the EU to do, not just on the Israel-Palestine issue, but we're, we're seeing it right now happening with Iran. So that makes it much, much harder for the EU to take decisive action without having the stability of the transatlantic partnership. So I think a return to the previous you know, decades of US policy by a future US president would certainly be a helpful turn of events. But I also think we've seen some interesting turns in policy from some of the Democrat candidates. So in particular, there's been this discussion around conditioning aid to Israel, military aid to Israel, um, upon various changes in policy. So move towards a two-state solution um, and such. Um, and I think that kind of bolder policy move could be extremely important and allow the EU to do its customary hiding behind the US position and perhaps take slightly bolder steps than what it's been uh, willing to do in the past. That's fascinating. Okay, so let's look into the future then. If you were to advise um, Borrell, if you were to advise the EU leadership, 
what should they be doing differently in the years to come? What can they really do um, if you're realistic? So I think it's a really it's a really good question. And I think a lot of people that you talk to in Europe have this really pessimistic sense that Europe is impotent on this conflict, that there's very little that the EU can actually do because of this need for unanimity. But I don't agree with that. I think that Burrell, of course, should try not to limit his ambition to the way that Mogherini did. So Mogherini spent an awful lot of time rhetorically defending the two-state solution. And as I said, she was she was often stuck at the level of statements. And we've identified already that this need for consensus in the council is what's paralyzing the EU's ability to formulate policy on this issue. I think there's an argument to be made that Borrell should find new and innovative ways of empowering member states to move in coalitions of the willing. So this is a format that proved very successful on the Iran nuclear deal, for example. So having the E3 with France, Germany and the UK plus EU format and also um, on Venezuela as well. This is something that has proved its merit and could be useful um, in the Israel-Palestine context as it's such a kind of divisive issue in the in the council. And in this type of format, what what could action look like? What might a coalition of the willing be doing that goes beyond statements? I think a good example of where they could do this is in Area C of the West Bank. This has been like a real battleground for the EU because the EU has built structures for Palestinians. So, you know, um, mobile homes or solar panels is a good example. And Israel has been demolishing EU-funded structures in Area C of the West Bank. And this is something that has understandably really aggravated some member states. This is where groups of um, member states could really move to try to go beyond statements in terms of just admonishing Israel for demolishing structures, but actually demanding compensation. Something else that I think that could be significant, which fits in actually to the vision that the Commission President Ursula von der Leyen seems to have for the EU. She talked about this new geopolitical commission, the idea of trying to link up the EU's internal and external policies. And I think that You know, this obviously applies beyond the Israel-Palestine context, but the EU has an enormous amount of power in terms of its weight as a as a trading power and also its weight as a development funder. And I think that the EU needs to be much smarter in terms of leveraging the, the trade and aid dimensions. And I think that the EU-Israel relationship could be an excellent test case for this. So just in brief, this relates to the idea of this policy of differentiation, um, which has been much discussed in the last few years. And that's the idea that the EU needs to differentiate between Israel proper and the territories that Israel occupied after 1967. And that means that the EU needs to make sure that the settlements which go beyond the 1967 borders don't benefit from the EU-Israel bilateral relationship. So that means making sure that any universities or settlement businesses are not able to participate in EU research programs, for example, or making sure that goods that are produced in the settlements aren't getting preferential treatment. And that's a very important policy, I think. There's obviously a legal reason for that. So making sure that the EU legal system 
isn't treating the settlements which it doesn't recognize you know it, it says that they're illegal as though they're part of Israel but then there's also a more political point to this which is in implementing policies like this this will increase the cost to Israel of maintaining the settlements and hopefully deter Israel from pursuing the policy so this kind of trade instrument I think could be quite a powerful one in trying to address some of the asymmetries of this conflict and this is something that the EU has already been doing um, over a number of years, but it's still very patchy and could be pushed a lot harder, I think, by Burrell. Mogherini could have been much stronger on this. And then there are there are quite a few others that I would recommend as well. But I think one one that I'll just mention in brief here, and then if listeners are interested, they can, of course, read the policy brief when it comes out soon, which is we've talked a lot about the accountability of Israel and the way in which Israel is responsible for um, the deterioration of the situation. But what we haven't really addressed is the role of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and the way in which the PA has been quite destructive. So... The, the problems with the leadership, but then also the, the state of Palestinian democracy. Rule in the West Bank is by presidential decree. The judiciary is controlled by the executive. The legislature is suspended. And Palestinian Authority security forces have been violating the human rights of Palestinians. The EU bankrolls the Palestinian Authority. It has a tremendous amount of um, leverage over the Palestinian Authority because of the fact it's the main funder. It also has an important diplomatic leverage over the PA because it mediates some of the PA's difficult relationships with neighbouring countries um, and, of course, with Israel and also the US. And so I think that the EU needs to be bolder in harnessing this leverage and trying to get the PA to address some of its shortcomings. The EU needs to be clear that the assistance it provides to the PA should be conditional on progress towards reconciliation, so reconciliation with Hamas in Gaza, progress towards democracy, and also the fair treatment of Ga the people of Gaza, because the, the Palestinian Authority has at times imposed sanctions on, on the people in Gaza, on civil servants in Gaza, for instance. And the EU has been too weak on this in the past because there's this concern about if you push Abbas too far, do you make his authority decline further and destabilize the West Bank? But I think that actually the EU could be could be stronger on that. Other recommendations, people can read my paper if they're interested. All right. I, I mean, I think we could talk about this forever, but I want to thank you, Beth. I thought this was fantastic thanks for uh summarizing this so clearly and also thank you for remaining hopeful and ambitious <laughs> i suppose about the role of the eu and the region just in closing what's the name of your forthcoming publication and where and when can listeners find that yeah so it is going to be called can the eu overcome its paralysis on palestine and it will be out in the next couple of weeks on the cer website uh, thank you so much thanks sophia bye Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.